Hello and welcome to another episode of Room for Thought. I've got a guest on today, Brendan O'Neill, the editor of Spiked Online. Thank you very much for coming in, Brendan. Hey Douglas, my pleasure. Brilliant. Um, you are a former revolutionary mm. Marxist. You're now the editor of Spiked Online. Yep. Tell us a little bit about how, as a former Marxist, you ended up being a libertarian. What, what was... <laughs> How, how did that happen? When I hear those terms, Marxist, and even libertarian as well, in fact, I often think about how unsuitable 20th century political language is for today. Because, mm -hmm. you know, Marxism is done and dusted. It was a very interesting experiment. It's over. I'm not one of those people who thinks it's going to come marching back and we're going to have a kind of, you know, Marxist utopia. I think that was that politics is over. Mm -hmm. um, but then also when I hear the word libertarian, I'm super liberal on so many issues. Um, mm -hmm. I think people should do pretty much anything they want so long as they don't hurt somebody else. Mm -hmm. um, but even the word libertarianism I have a few issues with at the moment because of the way in which it's become slightly warped, slightly twisted, um, particularly in its US use. Yes. I think it can sometimes mean problematic things. So um, in terms of my journey, however, from one thing to another, I would argue that I've been relatively consistent. And I would argue that if you go back to the origins of the left, and this mm -hmm. is a very long time ago, we're mm -hmm. talking mid-1800s, there was always a very libertarian streak. There was always a desire for growth, more freedom, more prosperity, mm -hmm. more choice. Mm -hmm. It's only a bit later, particularly in the, from the early 20th century through to the end of the 20th century, that being left-wing comes to mean something far more authoritarian, mm -hmm. far more pro-state, far more censorious. So, I, so I'm like, you know, when people say about rock bands, I prefer the early stuff. I'm like that with Marxism. I like the early stuff. If you were talking about the divisions in politics 50 years ago, 100 years ago, you would have resorted to a, a, an essentially Marxist frame, working class yes. against a capitalist class. Yeah. And, and that, you know, politics was about that division, the, 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 the labour interest, the Labour Party versus a party of, of farmers, the landed interest and small businesses, the Tory party. Um, similar divisions in most Western democracies mm -hmm. in, in America, similar divisions, Australia, similar divisions. I wonder if there's a division, and this is what's so intriguing about the whole Brexit thing, it shows that actually it's a very different division now. Mm. It's not a socio-economic division. It's a socio-cultural division. Yep. And the real schism is between those who, who go about their lives as ordinary folk and, and slightly resent being told by an elite how to perfect their world. And then there are those who support the elite and think that actually the job of... of the elite is to nanny the rest of us. And you Absolutely. see this in so many different guises. I think that's completely right. And I think that's one of the only one of the very valuable things about Brexit is the way in which it's brought to the surface the new divides, the new tensions. Because right up till 2016, really, many of us were still using the old language as a way to try and explain mm -hmm. events of the 21st century. And it didn't quite fit. It didn't quite work. It hasn't really since mm -hmm. the era of new labor and all those massive shifts that took place in mm -hmm. the 1990s. That the, the old left-right divide, the old class divide, didn't mm -hmm. really map very well onto the new politics that was mm -hmm. emerging. But I think you're absolutely right. The kind of politics we have now, the, the key divide now is not really the left-right divide or certainly not the working class, ruling class divide. 
it is between ordinary people who would like a bit more democracy, a bit more say in how their lives are run and how their communities are governed, and a bit more freedom to live as they choose mm -hmm. against an elite which is hectoring and lecturing and interfering and, anti and seriously, almost violently anti-democratic. And that's the key divide. And of course, so many different issues get reflected through that divide now. How, how you stand on the issue of nationhood, where you stand on the issue of national sovereignty, on the, on the issue of expertise versus ordinary people's points of view. All those great questions are really now mapping themselves onto this new divide between ordinary people and the elites. And I do think that's the, the fundamental question people need to ask themselves now is where do they stand in relation to that? A, a lot of the analysis of this divide has come up with the, the observation that those who tend to be in favour of the EU and um, in favour of the elites tend to be more educated, mm. whereas everyone else tends to be, you know, the, the, the more Eurosceptics tend to be less well-educated. Now, this is often invoked as, as evidence that, in fact, you, you know, the more enlightened you are, yeah. um, the more technocratic you become. Could it not be the case that actually people have been slightly over-educated yes. to the point where they, they think that they have insights into the world and what, what, what you see is scepticism amongst those who haven't been exposed to that sort of bogus empiricism. Absolutely right. And I think uh, what that speaks to, the, the, the fact that the, the more educated you are, the more likely you are to be pro-European Union and the more likely you are to have voted Remain. I think that speaks to one of the great tragedies of our time, which is mm -hmm. the way that the academy has become almost this factory of conformism. Mm -hmm. It used to be a place in which you would open your mind and challenge orthodoxy and think as you please and experiment with ideas. Mm -hmm. It's now increasingly become a place where you are fed a particular view of the world and if you push back against that you could get into big trouble so I think actually um, going to university these days is very often not for everyone but for many people it's actually a way in which you are educated into the elite view I was absolutely astonished to discover um, that the, I think it's 92 or 93 percent of academics voted remain and you think this these are Saddam Hussein levels of political conformism and and that's held up as proof that if you're clever, you're pro-EU. But of course, what it really proves is that there is absolutely no um, serious, uh, sceptical, critical thinking among these kinds of people these days. Was it maybe inevitable that as universities and higher education was expanded, that you were going to get, in effect, sort of muck universities where there's this sort of generic, uh, supposedly educating people, but actually just putting the same group think in a lot of minds? Yes, I think... Um, I think that's definitely part of the process. The thing that I find most striking about universities, I speak at a lot of universities, the kind of culture of conformism and hysteria sometimes and this desire to live in a safe space, which really means just protecting yourself from critical thinking. This is why so many of them are lazy thinkers. Um, I find that that culture is more pronounced on the old elite universities than it is in the new red brick universities or even the polytechnics that were really? attached to much later. Yeah, so Oxford and Cambridge, when I've spoken there in recent years there's been protests there have been people saying your words hurt me I cannot cope um, similarly in Durham and also in York I've had these experiences where people just react in a very hysterical way to what I consider to be perfectly normal points of is view. That, is that also partly narcissism on their part I mean you're talking here you may say something that a viewer 
finds offensive. I, I hope you won't. But, you know, they're free not to watch. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, you know, uh, when I was banned from speaking at Oxford in 2014, uh, Timothy Stanley and I were due to give, have a debate on abortion. Um, I was going to give the pro-choice side and he was going to give the pro-life side and it was advertised and everything. And the argument that the students made when they made the case for it being banned, which it eventually was, was that it was unacceptable for us to come into their home into their space and have this discussion. Now, of course, a, a room on their campus is not their home, it's not their kitchen, it's not their living room, and they were perfectly free not to attend. But it is precisely that narcissism. It's also strikingly arrogant. Yes. I mean, it reminds me rather of, if I may say rather randomly, the Speaker of the House of Commons. Mm -hmm. Here's an individual passing for an institution far bigger than him, and yet his entire term of office has been marked by him assuming that he's more important than the institution in which yes. he sits. Similarly, students are at university for three, maybe four years. They are passing through an institution far bigger and greater than they would ever be. Yeah. It's an honour and a privilege to be there. Um, surely they've got it the wrong way around if they're presuming that they should be defining it as their space. Absolutely. It's not. And uh, it's an extraordinary sense of entitlement, an yeah. extraordinary arrogance. It does speak to, I fear, um, the way in which in the new generation have been brought up to, to mm -hmm. value their self-esteem above all else, mm -hmm. to believe that anyone who criticizes them or offends them is, is wounding them, mm -hmm. and to believe that their feeling good about everything is the most important thing in the world. Now, of course, earlier generations were taught almost the exact opposite of all of that, which is that, you know, stop thinking about yourself, get out into the world, help others, make an impact. So I do think the, the culture on campuses, the way in which people have this astonishingly arrogant belief that they can float through life without ever encountering, encountering a difficult idea you, or a sore idea, I think that is really extraordinary. You, you don't have a right to a pain-free existence. No? Life is hard. Life yes. is challenging. Bad things happen to good people. Life and is. surely part of preparing for life and, and learning um, as a young person, how to cope with life is is actually not just learning critical thinking, but learning about adversity. People will say things that you find offensive. Absolutely, it's, it's what happens. It, absolutely, and uh, the, you know, it, it's it's good for you. It's actually good for you to be to be made upset and to to encounter an argument that you find offensive. Yeah. I mean, all those things are good for you. And this is what people have been saying for, for centuries. You know, Cardinal John Henry Newman said, the human intellect does from opposition grow. Mm. I mean, that's how you expand your mind. That's how you become a critical thinker. Mm -hmm. That's how you either give yourself the freedom to change your mind by, you know, uh, having others ridicule you or criticize you or take you to task. You give yourself the freedom to change your mind or you fortify your beliefs and you get better at, at explaining why you hold those beliefs. Mm -hmm. But if you just hide away from that kind of engagement and arrogantly presume that you are right because you know you are right, you actually just become a dogmatist. Mm -hmm. You believe these things simply out of habit. And so I, I would much rather that students and everybody else took took the John Stuart Mill approach. You know, in Non Liberty, John Stuart Mill makes the point that the only way you can know you are right is if you subject yourself to as free and frank discussion mm. as possible. And if you don't do that, then you don't know you're right. You're just presuming you're right. And so I think that the failure of universities to encourage that kind of climate where if you hold a belief, then you should go out there and argue for it mm. is going to give rise to a new generation mm. which will be more dogmatic than mm. liberal. I, I went and gave a, a number of talks um, at number of universities when I published a, a book mm. and the book was uh, an attempt to a sort of a libertarian view of history 
And I, I remember going and talking to a group of undergraduates, and there were a couple of postgraduate students in the audience. And it, during the course of our discussion, it became obvious to me it had never, they had never been exposed, for example, to the notion that you know, one of the fiercest critics of British imperial expansion had been British liberals. Yeah. Um, this extraordinary sort of almost cartoon version of history. Yeah. Um, and I, 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 I fear that it's one of the reasons why you get these sort of this, this allegiance to these sort of cartoon tribes mm. um, of, of, of left and right. If, if, if you're taught that um, you know there's a, there's very little nuance in the past. You you look at the world today, and and you instantly try to press any event or any character or any figure into either being good, cheer, tweet it, retweet it, hashtag it, <laughs> or bad, jeer it, no platform it, block it. Yeah. And I I, I, I think that that lack of lack of real education. Yeah. Um, people often say it's social media that's corrupting political discourse. I wonder actually if it's something far more profound with the education system. I think it is. Uh, and I've always argued that social media is not the cause of these problems. In fact, what social media does, it moulds itself around mm. an already existing mm. culture. Mm. That's what social media is very good at. So it lends itself mm -hmm. to these kinds of ideas and the expression of these kinds of ideas. But it, it didn't, it, it, it's not the originator of these mm -hmm. ideas. I do think it's a lot to do with the education system. I think it's a lot to do with the way people are raised, the way that schools work, the way that universities work. And I think you're absolutely right. There is this culture of binary moralism. You're either uh, the greatest person ever or you're a fascist. I mean, that's essentially what people argue. And there's this real lack of nuance, this lack of substance, mm. and this lack of historical depth, this lack of appreciation for the complexity and the wonder and the um, importance of British history and world history. Mm -hmm. So uh, often the way in which students engage with history is is in the same way they engage with politics today, which is just mm -hmm. to go back in time and tick off the good people and yeah. tick off the bad people. It's <laughs> I, very, very I, naive. I, I actually wonder if two of the most influential political books of our time, without us even realising it, are um, Jared Diamond's Guns, Germs and Steel and uh, uh, Yuval's, um, Hariri Yuval's mm. Sapiens. Why? Because they're very, very popular. People read them and get an impression of the past. But there are ideas in those books, both brilliantly written, mm. ideas in those books that actually, I think, have profound implications on, on politics. I mean, um, you know, um, Sapiens, for example, argues that um, the agrarian revolution was a, a, a disaster mm. for humankind. Mm -hmm. um, actually, it, 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 it almost encourages people to accept the sort of Jean Rousseau interpretation yeah. of, of human progress, which is that, you know, actually modernity has seen us descend from a pristine past. And, and Jared Diamond's book tries to account for Western exceptionalism almost as though it's some sort of accident. He talks about how some societies were more successful than others because they were better at domesticating crops because the local fauna and flora just happened right. to be, you know, I mean, there's no attempt to understand that actually the West was more advanced than other parts of the planet because there were certain things that the West did that weren't about exploiting other societies, that weren't about um, you know, a, a conquest, um, but certain things that were innate to the West which allowed Western society to, to flourish. Yeah. And if, if you don't teach that, if you teach, a very, uh, 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 if you teach a view of history that contradicts that, you end up with people just simply not accepting 
um, that there's such a thing as progress and there are certain things that drive it. That's absolutely right. And and you teach them that history is almost this kind of naturalistic, accidental yes. thing, whereas, in fact, it involves a huge amount of decision-making. You know, to, to quote Marx, um, man makes history not necessarily in the circumstances of his choosing, but he still makes history. And so a lot of the uh, ideas around Western exceptionalism and the progress that took place in, in the Western world was driven by thought and ideas and um, decision-making and, and the development of an intellectual culture which actually encouraged uh, a, an approach to the world, an approach to nature in particular, which was focused on understanding it and using it. But, you know, I think you're absolutely right also to raise this problem of the way in which revolutionary breakthroughs in human history tend to be taught increasingly as bad things. The agrarian revolution, I mean, recently we had David Attenborough being asked, when did all these terrible problems of pollution start? And he said, well, with the industrial revolution. I saw a program on Sky News, which was suggesting seriously that Britain had a, because it was one of the first industrial revolutions, had some sort of uh, carbon legacy. I mean, it's it's insane. What, it's insane. What, what is a, a, a undoubtedly a, 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 a incident of great progress, which yeah. had huge implications not just for people living on this island but around the world. Yeah, huge positive elevation of humankind is taught as though it's a, a, a some kind of fall from the Garden of Eden. It's, it's staggering, really, and and in many ways that was also the message of the um, two thousand and twelve. Olympic opening ceremony, uh, Danny Boyle's opening ceremony, which had a lot of, you know, uh, there was the green, pristine land, and I think there was a William Blake quote, and then suddenly these horrible machines rose up, and everyone was marching around like a bunch of robots. That is the um, the, the kind of PC elite. That's their impression. Do you think the environmental movement is basically a sort of post-Christian religious belief system? It allows people to, like many old religions, it, it has this idea of the fall, the idea yes. we had a pristine past and the world has been corrupted somehow, modernity, industrialization has corrupted it, and the world needs to be restored to some sort of equilibrium. This is a theme in, in a lot of old traditional religions, and that the restoration of the world to this equilibrium depends upon sacrifice and submission to an elite. And yes. that's basically the modern environmental movement in I one. think that is a very good description. I, I, I am so opposed to the politics of environmentalism. I think it is backward and crazy in some instances and um, anti-human. It has this mm -hmm. idea that humans are a pox on the planet. We're a plague on the planet and we need to be corrected um, either through uh, discouraging people from having children at all or through shrinking the human footprint. Now, in my mind, you know, the human footprint is said as if it's a dirty thing, a horrible thing. In my mind, it's a great thing. We've humanized the planet. We've tamed the planet. We've made the planet livable for billions of people, which previously wasn't the case. And through things like the Industrial Revolution, which I think was actually the most important moment in human history so far, in terms of the staggering propulsion it gave, it forcing humanity forward into this world in which far more things were possible, including not simply growth and transport and creation and, and production, but also... Um, Education and the, the city abolition life. of slavery. The a abolition absolutely. of slavery. Before the Industrial Revolution, if you wanted to increase output, you had to get someone else to work for you. That's the right. Industrial Revolution comes along, the steam engine, fossil fuel, suddenly you can increase output without depending on the labour of a captive. That's right. And so uh, the, the progress it gave rise to in material terms, intellectual terms, lifespan mm. is uh, incredible. And we're still seeing it. I mean, and we're still seeing it. If, if you lived in China today, well, one of the newly 
minted middle-class Chinese, I don't think you would really seriously believe that a return to traditional organic farming was yeah. the way forward. Yeah. Because your parents were remember the 60s and they would have starved. Well, that's right. You know, when I hear Attenborough and others say the Industrial Revolution is the cause of all these problems, I always think to myself, well, that's actually fine for people who come from wealthy backgrounds to say but for the rest of us who if there had been no industrial revolution we would have died before we were 30 from some disease and literally never left the town we were born in and never gone to school and never voted in an election is it for us the industrial revolution was actually a very important thing but i think you i think you're right to compare um environmentalism to religion like a post Christian religion, but I always want to make this point to people because I was brought up. A, I'm 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 post-religious myself, but I was brought up a Catholic, and um, I often find myself defending religion from uh, not from people like you, but you know from the new atheist types who, yeah. who think religion is the worst thing in the world. And the thing that strikes me about environmentalism is that it's it is very like those religions. It has this end of worldism, this sense of sin, this sense of original sin, the sense of needing to cleanse yourself. But it, it lacks a fundamental positive quality that those religions had, particularly Christianity, which was the idea of transcendence. The idea that you would do all this stuff, you would flagellate yourself for your sins, you would wash Sit on top of the pillow for 20 years. Do all that, right, all this awful stuff and, and live a pretty rough life in parts. But you would, in order to transcend it all and become a perfected human and to have this afterlife and this wonderful life that would go on forever. So there was a promise attached to it. It wasn't simply about beating yourself up for being a bad person. The, the really depressing thing about environmentalism is it has all the self-flagellation and the self-denial and, and the self-punishment. But none of the payoff. Or you just do all this stuff for the simple end of shrinking your footprint and then you die. And even when you die, it's problematic because you're, if you get cremated, apparently that causes pollution. If you get buried, apparently that's taking up too much space. Every single aspect of human life is treated as a bad thing. And in need of micromanagement. In need of micromanagement. And, and there's no sense that you will be rewarded in any way for having done all these terrible things. So I find environmentalism a really misanthropic, depressing creed. But you could be rewarded, because if you do all these things, you could become a member of the intellectual elite. Well, yes. Yeah, so there is a, there's the small reward, the very small reward, of potentially becoming uh, you know, a member of the right-on, the kind of self-selected now, group. I, it's not just environmentalism. It's not just Brexit. Everywhere you look today, you see a sort of patrician class that is trying to organize and patronize the, the masses. You see, you know, I, I know you've written about football, mm. where there's this obsession amongst the people at the top of football with racism in football. This idea that you know, everyone who, 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 who's on the terrace is a potential skinhead. Um, there are you know, ideas about you know, hate crime, mm. um, ideas that you know, unless we ban certain types of comedy and, and a very you know, restrictive in terms of what can and can't be said on television. You know, this will somehow incite the the, 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 the white van driving mo- masses. Isn't this just ultimately telling us more about the intellectual and cultural elites than about the, the, the masses? Doesn't it just suggest that actually the people that run this country, the people that produce TV programs, the people that decide public policy and government departments basically don't like the mass of Brits. They see them as a mob. 
Yes, absolutely right. They really do. And I think that's another good thing about Brexit. It's, it's, it's exposed that. I think it's mm -hmm. been there for a very long time. I mean, historically, it's been, if you read John Carey's The Intellectuals and the Masses about early 20th century uh, literary figures, um, he writes brilliantly about how, can, how much they loathed the masses. They hated mass education. They hated mass newspapers. They hated mass food, mass production. They thought people were idiots and robots and, and stupid. Um, and shouldn't have the right to vote. <laughs> Ironically, it, that's also making a comeback in the Brexit discussion. You see, so, I mean, you see this in, in little ways. I mean, I, I, I've, I've been at dinner parties in London where people have this sort of sneering attitude towards mass air travel. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think mass air travel is one of the miracles of the yeah. modern world. I think the fact that you can get on a, a cheap airline for 30 quid and take your family for a bit of sunshine, fantastic. But there's this sort of idea that it's, it's you know, it's horrific and it's horrible. Not, not, not. I think because the people who say these things don't themselves fly off to their villas yeah. in Italy, but because they they deeply resent the idea that you know um, Joe Bloggs in Clacton and Croydon can do it. That's exactly what it is. And there was a campaign group called Plain Stupid, which was an anti-flying campaign group about ten years ago. It's now broken up, and they've all got huge jobs at Greenpeace and everywhere else as these posh kids <laughs> tend to do. And it was ex they, they they were explicit. I mean, they had an article on their website which said, um, you know, this the problem with cheap flying is that it's all about people going to a city in Eastern Europe for a stag night to get wasted on a tenor. <laughs> Um, and they don't look at art and they don't look at art. Whereas if you're Tarquin going to Florence right. or Cressida going to Pisa, it's okay. Then the pollution's <laughs> fine. So, and, and that was a group that was supported by people like George Monbiot and many others. I mean, just visceral snobbery, visceral class hatred. But you see that on so many issues. I wouldn't days. accuse George of that. I mean, I think George is pretty fair-minded and pretty well, consistent. Well, the, the, uh, the, th the problem with all environmentalists, I think, I mean, if you, if you read George, uh, George Monbiot's book, uh, Heat, I mean, he, he openly says that um, the difference between the environmentalist movement and pretty much every movement before it is that ours is a movement not for abundance, but for austerity and not for greater freedom, but for less and not for more choice, but for less choice. And actually, there are medieval monks who would have agreed with that. Exactly. And I actually admired that because that yeah. was one of the most honest appraisals I, I've I, seen I, of environmentalism. I, I have huge respect for George. I disagree with him on many things, but I think he is absolutely consistent. And he, he, I don't think, tells different audiences different things. I think he, he authentically believes it. He has a worldview. I disagree with it. But I, I, I wouldn't accuse him of, of being inconsistent. There are plenty yeah, there. Yeah, absolutely. I think he's entirely consistent. And, and my issue, of course, is mm -hmm. that he's consistent on an issue where I think he is fundamentally yeah. wrong. But I think you're, you're right to raise the, um, uh, the, the, the kind of contempt for the masses that exists now. Because you do mm -hmm. see that in so many different areas. Football is a very good example where it's just this presumption that if you have a huge number of people together in one space, obviously they're going to be racist. Obviously they're going to commit. But they never crime. make the same accusation of rugby fans. No, why is that? Never. And it's you're right. And why is that? And I wonder if there's a class differential there. And of course, that's really what drives yeah. this. And um, but it, it makes me laugh. You know, the Guardian will often publish articles about how horrible and crass and, and, and racist in particular football fans tend to be. You think football, the, the football has 30% 30, 30 of Premier League players are black. That's higher proportion of, of black employees than any other profession um, in the UK. 
Uh, of course, also, vast numbers of them are working class. Hundreds of thousands of Brits are paying their hard-earned pounds yeah. to go and watch these players and cheering them on. And cheering them <laughs> and going crazy for them. And yeah. their kids are walking around with a, a black football player's jersey on. They worship these people. And then you look at a newspaper like The Guardian, pretty white, very posh, huge numbers of them privately educated. And you think, hold on, can you just stop attacking a sport which is still predominantly... Uh, played and watched by working class people because it just does come off as quite contemptuous. I remember reading Owen Jones uh, a while ago, the demonization of the working class. Mm. And I, I think actually, interestingly, he, he things he says in that, um, you know, I represented Clacton at the time, um, and there were things he said in that book that, that really, really struck a chord mm. with me. There, there is, I think, this sort of... Um, cultural and intellectual contempt for 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 the British. Or interestingly, the elite don't seem to mind non-British masses. Mm. You know, if 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 you're sort of uh, migrants, if you're a uh, European, you've come to London, they're, they're all in favour of that, presumably because it means cheap housekeeping and cleaning mm. staff for them. But it, it's very much a sort of hatred of their own their own country that yeah. I, I find extraordinary. Uh, uh, I completely agree. And in fact, what, you, what they will often do is contrast the, um, the hard-working immigrant, the kind of studious immigrant, mm -hmm. the good immigrant, mm -hmm. with what they yeah. view as the feckless, lazy, native working classes. They will often quite consciously make yeah. that distinction. Yeah. And so I think that in itself contributes to a culture in which lots of mm. um, white working class people mm. come to be a bit iffy mm. about mass immigration and a bit concerned about it but I think uh, if you look at if you look at someone like Owen Jones and his book Chavs which had some very good stuff in it what's very striking about him and a lot of other people from that kind of left-wing ilk is they've gone from defending Chavs from demonization or the working classes from demonization towards themselves demonizing people who they refer to as gammon who are these kind of red-faced lower middle class people who go on question time and moan about Corbyn. Or, I'm definitely gammon. I'm proudly you're, gammon. Yeah, you're a proud <laughs> gammon. That's very good. Um, or, you know, they will demonise um, sections of the people who voted for Brexit, you know, yeah. they're xenophobic. Or even worse than calling them xenophobic, they will say, well, they didn't really know what they were voting for. They were a bit confused. Yeah. So I'm struck by the way in which, I think this is one of the most fascinating things about British politics at the moment, which is the way in which the left has gone from being, uh, from being concerned about defending the working classes or defending chaps mm -hmm. or defending the lower sections of society mm -hmm. towards actually being part of the process of demonizing those groups mm -hmm. um, as stupid, racist, unintelligent. And I think that shift is really important because I think that's why quite a few working class voters mm -hmm. are abandoning the Labour Party. You see it in all sorts of unintentional cultural contexts. For example, you travel on the London Underground. There are posters there basically saying, you know, we will come after you if you shout at our star. Mm. And the clear implication of the graphics of the poster, I might, I might if I can find some um, to show in this video show, the clear implication is that, you know, um, the mass of people traveling on the London Underground can't be trusted to be polite and yeah. civil. Yeah. And, and they need, you know, to be reminded, almost like sort of you would expect in an authoritarian Chinese or Russian state in the 1950s or 60s, you know, it's, it's, uh, we're watching you. Yeah, it's this constant low-key 
hectoring of the public. Yeah. And they are being watched, of course. You can't walk through London without being captured on, I don't know, 50 or 100 CCTV mm. cameras. But you have those warning posters on the underground. You see them in doctor's surgeries as well. You know, don't abuse our staff. And you're sitting there thinking, I have no plan. I just want to see a doctor. I know, wherever you see one of those signs in any institution saying abuse of our staff will not be tolerated, it almost invariably means that that institution only engages with you, the customer, on their terms. Yes. Because if they had to compete for business, yeah. in, in my local GP surgery, um, there is one of those signs saying, you know, and the receptionist sits behind a glass barrier, and yeah. there's a big sign saying being rude to our staff will not be tolerated. When I take my pet to the local veterinary clinic two streets away, there's none of that. Right. And the vet right. sends me, or rather the dog, a Christmas card every year. Right. It's because I am a customer, or my dog is a customer of the vets through choice. Whereas when it comes to the GP surgery, I have no choice. I'm allocated one by the state and that's... There's a lot of... Whenever there's a state um, control or monopoly mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. huge amount of influence, you do tend to find that contempt coming through more mm. and more. Mm. Um, and I do think it speaks to this incredible distance between ordinary people yeah. and the contemporary yeah. state and this sense of suspicion of the state against ordinary mm. people. But I think, you know, people get this message all the time that they're stupid and untrustworthy. Mm. So with those kinds of posters, they get the message you know, that you're a mob waiting to explode and attack a doctor or, or a train driver. Uh, but then you also see public health posters these days, which are becoming increasingly gross. You know, photographs of cancerous limbs and all that famous one a few years ago where a, a woman, I think, had a fish, a fish hook in yeah. her mouth. It was really graphic and horrible. It was basically, don't get hooked on whatever it was, drink or drugs or, or smoking and there's this constant um, and they're becoming grosser and grosser it's yeah. the kind of gross out culture which is basically has the implication of saying you lot are a bunch of animals you can't really mm. um, override your own instincts so it falls to us mm. the educated elite once again to come in and explain to you mm. constantly with very simple mm. images because you're also a bit stupid how you should live mm. and what choices you should make yeah. and it's that that kind of constant paternalism which i think does rub people up the wrong way if you take a historic view in the 1980s the mining interest in the north of england and and parts of wales and parts of scotland um, was involved in a conflict with the government and with some would say the rest of the country and they lost they lost pretty com comprehensively before that there was a, a shipbuilding interest that had a conflict um, and you saw a particular socio-economic interest mm. losing in one of the major political battles of the time. What I, I think is happening is that for the first time ever, the intellectual and the cultural elites, the, 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 the people who've done rather well with rising house prices on their smart homes in the southeast of England, the people who you know, could assume automatically that not only would their sons and daughters go off to the best universities subsidized by the state, but then they would then go into the best jobs in mm. banks in the city and in marketing and advertising. That, that, that sort of group of entitled uh, people in you know, the well-to-do upper middle classes in England, for the first time ever, have been on the losing end of a, mm. a, a battle. And they, they probably know what it might feel like to be a, a miner in 
Yorkshire in right. 1985, right? <laughs> when you lose. Yes, uh, and I think that's one of the most fascinating things about the moment we're living through in the UK right now is that we have a class of people who are not used to losing yeah. and who are not used to to not getting their way. And wh whether it's Thatcher or John Major or Tony Blair or David Cameron, basically the person in number ten was on their side. Yes, and that's right. And and so so you have a situation, and I think that's why we're having this, we're witnessing this hysterical meltdown, yeah. and it really is a hysterical yeah. meltdown. That's not an exaggeration. I mean, the, the language that these people are using, the chattering classes, mm. the upper middle classes, the people who have, who have had influence for a very long period of time, mm. they are using unhinged language mm. to describe the current political climate. They will say that it's a return to the nineteen thirties. This is like fascism. Boris Johnson is the, is the biggest disaster ever to hit the planet. Mm -hmm. um, the people have been brainwashed. You know, hell has descended. I, know, I noticed that yesterday, uh, recently, when Boris Johnson became uh, prime minister or won the Tory leadership contest, um, it, it coincided with very hot weather. And there was all this discussion about this is the sign that hell is descending. Now, it's kind of jokey, but it's kind of not jokey. Yeah, yeah. They really have lost connection with reason and with reality mm -hmm. and and the reason they that's happened is because this they've never experienced this before they have never experienced losing a serious political battle and they cannot believe it's allowed to happen mm -hmm. and so they are going to do everything in their power they will use the legal courts they will use political pressure they will encourage MPs to constantly vote down brexit and no deal and so on they will do mm -hmm. everything within the power that they still cling on to to ensure that it doesn't happen mm -hmm. and to ensure that it's not allowed to happen. And that's why I think the battle for Brexit is so, so historically important. Because unless we dislodge that um, the arrogant nature of the political class, mm -hmm. then you cannot ever have real change. But for, for me, leaving the European Union was never just a question of home rule. It was mm -hmm. always who rules at home. Dan Hannan and I wrote a book 10 years ago today called The Plan. And it was ostensibly an attempt to remold Euroscepticism instead of talking about the sovereignty of the country and the constitution and instead of using the, 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 the memes that the men of Maastricht used with such disastrous effect um, a generation ago. What we were trying to do is to say, look, if you want to localise power, if you want to disperse power, if you want to make sure that your local community has more power, mm. you, you've got to be on the side of extricating ourselves from yeah. the EU. And we built this narrative. And we rarely mentioned Europe at all yeah. in the book. But if you read the book and agreed with it, you would come out taking it as obvious that we should leave the European Union. And that yeah. was the whole point of it. Yeah. I think uh, one thing that I've realised over the past three years is that um, I mean, I've always been anti-European Union. I've always been instinctively anti-European Union. Intellectually, I've always considered it a, a very clear undermining of what we would consider to be proper democracy, which is mm -hmm. that if you live under laws, then you have to have the capacity to influence and consent to the institutions that make those laws. So the EU is undemocratic. In fact, mm -hmm. it's anti-democratic. Yeah. Um, but what I've realised, and I'm sure many other people have realised too, is that the people who are really usurping democracy in the UK live in the UK. 
They are the political class of the UK. Yeah. They, these are the people who outsourced our sovereignty to the European Union in the first place. And these are the people who are doing everything within their power to ensure that we remain beholden to yeah. the European Union. And you think to yourself, it's a really clarifying moment because, you know, we all love to make fun of Juncker and to talk about how corrupt, how unbelievably corrupt. But they're on his side. Right. And But the question is, uh, you know, the people who are right now causing the biggest problems for those of us who voted for Brexit and for democracy itself are the people who are here at yeah. home. And that's the real problem. It, it's not just an assortment of former prime ministers, you know, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, and actually to his great credit, not David Cameron, but most of the rest of them, who've, who've been clearly trying to undermine the referendum. I think John Major was again outed on the BBC saying we should have a, a, a second referendum. Um, I, I think it's even more profound and widespread than that. If, if you are a civil servant in Westminster or a politician in Westminster, being in the EU you actually like because it changes the relationship between you and the people yeah. over whom you govern. Yeah. It makes you accountable to the council of ministers, to officialdom in Brussels. It gives you a ready-made excuse to do things that you know you wouldn't otherwise be able to do. And it, it, they quite like that. Yeah. It, it sort of makes it a lot easier being a public official. Um, you can do public policy making without reference to the public. And leaving the European Union suddenly means it's, it's a bit like Friday afternoon, you've yeah. got to go and see the boss. That's right. <laughs> it's exactly right. And I think uh, so in the post-war era, so much of politics in Western Europe, tragically, has been about insulating the political decision-making process from the people. And that's taken various different forms. We've seen the rise of, firstly, um, all the European Union institutions and, and the ones that came before it, the EEC and so on, and the Treaty of Rome and everything else, but also through the, the rise of the judiciary and the role central of bankers. central bankers and, and yeah. technocrats in general yeah. and, the, and the increasing role all these forces play in politics, all contributes to a culture where the, the overarching aim has been how can we insulate the political class who make responsible mm. decisions apparently from the throng, from the masses, from ordinary people. And they've got really used to that climate. Yeah. They've got really used to that culture of being able to pass laws and do things without having to engage with the grubby people who live down the end of yeah. their street. And, and so th the fact that we have ripped away that insulation or we yes. aspire to rip away that insulation, absolutely terrifies them. And three years ago, with a million strong mandate, million strong majority, the voters instruct them, stop, change our relationship with the EU. And what do they spend three years doing? They spend three years doing everything they can to perpetuate the status quo. This is what I think is going to be their undoing. Yeah. If they'd been clever, yeah. if, they had, if they had actually said, right, okay, this needs to change, I, I think we would end up with what you might call a EU membership. But the, the sheer stupidity of, yeah. of, of the elite, I think now means actually that, you know, rather like, rather like the American colonies, <laughs> we're, 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 going to, we're going to completely separate. I think that's right. And, and that reaction, that rash reaction, that instantaneous um, desire, whether you're very, very soon after the referendum result, people like that were saying, we have to stop this. We can't let this happen. Mm. Um, this is unacceptable. Mm. Um, it, it's really the fact that they had that reaction rather yeah. than the reaction they might previously have had or, or which they have in relation to lots of other issues yeah. which is this is really bad for us let's try and fix it to our advantage 
speaks to how profound a challenge Brexit yeah. is to everything that they hold dear yeah. and to their power itself. And what? so the, the, the more they react like that, the more I'm sure lots of ordinary people, millions in fact, who voted for Brexit are thinking to themselves, okay, so the thing we voted for is really powerful and upsetting to those people. And therefore, we're going to become even more determined to make sure that it happens. If, if the Brexit reformation and the attempts by the elite to stall it have popularised in the minds or, or crystallised in the minds of millions of people that we've got this self-serving elite. Um, mm. I think it's also changed people's attitudes towards journalism. Mm. When, when I was a new MP, I went into the House of Commons assuming that journalists, to use that dreadful phrase, were there to speak truth to power. Actually, I discovered most journalists are buying the minister lunch yeah. and are trying to become his special advisor. You, you, you now have a situation, I think, where the whole country can see that the people on the television and on the radio, I mean, newspapers are slightly different. We've always known that you get a distorted view in a particular newspaper. The Guardian will tell you one thing, the Sun will tell you another. But the extent to which the broadcast journalists are actually engaging in wholesale systematic narrative fraud, presenting current affairs as factual, when in fact it's purely based on their preferred outcomes, I mean, I, I, I think it's, 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 it's really changing public attitudes towards journalism. And I, I, I find this really exciting. I think it opens up the opportunity for shows like this mm. to compete and to say, actually, well, you know, if, if you're going to have the man from the BBC tell you their, their view of the world, um, let's see if we can do a better job. Yeah, um, I, I, I think that's a, another one of the most interesting things that's happening right now is, is the exposure of the biased nature of so much broadcast journalism in particular and the BBC is a very good example of that and you know that I'm not one of those people who, who really is a tub thumping BBC basher I think the BBC does lots of good things but the, the the extent to which they are on the side of the currently quite bruised establishment has become so palpable to so many people. And I think you're right. What people, what, what could happen as a consequence of this revelation is that we could have the rise of alternative media, different, you know, podcasts, videos, uh, magazines. I'd love to see Netflix do current affairs. <laughs> it's, it, exactly. It's this kind of, um, and people are searching for those kinds of outlets for a different point of view, for a more realistic point of view or, or one that, that sounds to them more reasonable than what they're getting from the mainstream media. If, by the way, viewer, you're searching for alternative comment and uh, current affairs analysis, make sure you subscribe to this channel. Sorry, I thought. Yes, I <laughs> that's a very good point. And um, but the, the the other thing that I think is interesting again is that you have the political the rash political class reaction against Brexit, because they mm. know how terrifying it is. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you have this um, rash reaction by journalists and the journalistic establishment against the rise of new media. So I think a lot of the fake news panic, now this is not to say that fake news doesn't exist, and this is not to say that there aren't people out there polluting the internet in particular with stuff that's not true, of course there are. That stuff has always happened. But the panic about fake news, yeah. I think, also speaks to um, this, uh, this hysteria almost, or suddenly this sense of fear among the journalistic establishment, Absolutely. the media establishment, who cannot abide the fact that they're role as gatekeepers is now explicitly being called into question. What they don't realise is that one of the reasons it's being called into question is because they screwed it up so badly and made it so obvious to anyone with two brain cells to rub together that that was precisely their role, that they were gatekeeping 
um, political information and the, the, the correct way of viewing the world and the establishment I, view. I, I suspect because of this, we will shortly see an attempt to have in effect a sort of a state license mm. of journalists of some kind. At the mm. moment, you could be a journalist, I could be a journalist, um, anyone could call themselves a journalist. Um, anyone can broadcast, anyone can write things. Um, I've met an awful lot of people who call themselves freelance journalists. Um, you know, you don't need a qualification. I wonder if you might see some sort of attempt by the commentariat classes to create a, some sort of authentication process. Mm. You could see this through Ipso or whatever yeah. it calls itself. Um, I noticed there was an attempt to talk up the prospect of a, a, a bill to enshrine press freedom. Yeah. I, I fear that one of the consequences yeah. of that would be to create a statutory definition of what was and wasn't a journalist. I wouldn't be. Uh, I mean, it's it's a testament to how far we've come in terms of the kind of political meltdown that I wouldn't be surprised by that either. Yeah. And of course, we've heard echoes of of, of that in the um, post Leveson era, where the Crime and Courts Act, uh, Section Forty of the Crime and Courts Act, if it was passed, would require every media publication to sign up to state approved regulation. And if you didn't, then you would suffer severe financial consequences if you ever, were ever taken to court. So there was a, a really strong financial incentive to do this. Now, that hasn't come through. One of the reasons I voted for the Tory party in 2017, which is the first time I've ever voted for the Tories, is because one of the promises in their manifesto is that they would not implement Section 40. And also, they said we'd leave the customs union in the single market. <laughs> so, you, exactly, exactly. So, um, but if you look at Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party, now who knows how long Corbyn will last, but he promises to enforce Section 40. And so there is this desire, particularly among the, the, the further left you go in this political establishment, the more interest there is and more desire, this kind of censorious authoritarian desire mm. to control the media. And I would not be surprised if we ended up in a situation where in order to be a journalist, you needed a kind of the equivalent of a blue tick. You need you would need to be authenticated by the state itself. You would have had to go to journalist training yeah. school in order to That's ask right. facile, stupid, gotcha questions, which is what they all seem to do. Absolutely. Um, quickly, what should we do with the BBC? Subscription service? Yes. Yeah. Um, I didn't hold that view uh, a couple of years ago. I, I was never one of those people who got particularly exercised about the license fee. I don't particularly like it, but I never really got exercised about mm. it. But in recent times, particularly when we had the um, pensioners scandal, where mm. uh, older people will now be charged on a means-tested basis mm. for their license fee, it really started to make me think that in the current climate, when there is so mm. much choice, when there is Netflix and Amazon Prime yeah. and so many other things that you can that you subscribe to that you pay for, I pay for both of yeah. those things, for example. Um, being forced by law to pay the BBC, even if you don't engage with it very yeah. much, seems to me to be utterly but okay. What I resent most about the BBC is not their current affairs output. I no longer bother with that much. I I deeply resent switching on the television for a bit of drama. And being lectured to, yeah. you know, every every hero has to be a minority woman. Yeah. Every baddie has. I mean, you know, come on, guys. Um, you know, I know that Netflix makes some fantastic drama with an array of characters and really engaging scripts. And what I love about it is so often the person that you're watching isn't famous or wasn't famous until they started appearing on Netflix. You switch on to the yeah. BBC, and you know there must be thirty or forty actors. 
that apparently have to star in everything. Yes, that's absolutely right. <laughs> and presumably it's the same with the scriptwriters, the same crappy scriptwriters. Yeah, but and then if you look at something like EastEnders, I know not many people watch EastEnders anymore, but that, it, it, that was explicitly used as a mechanism for telling people about certain issues, you know, particularly related to health and how to look after your health or, you know, to raise awareness, that kind of deadening phrase about domestic violence and all these other things. And, and that was a very clear example of culture being used by the the establishment to to lecture the masses and you think well, that's just irritating mm, mm. but you know I, th- I i agree you know netflix produces some amazing stuff one of my favorite tv shows of recent times is the crown i think it's it's such a profound historical um observation of the past 50 mm. years in essence um that's the kind of thing the BBC should be producing, and it's the kind of thing the yeah. BBC might have produced if it hadn't gone so far down, so far up its own fundament in kind of viewing itself as the kind of guardian of good sense in the nation. And so it's overstepped the mark, and I think that the time has come for it to be taken down yeah. a peg or two yeah. by saying, if, listen, voluntary subscription yeah. is the way to go. I mean, if Damien Collins wasn't so, and his committee in the House of Commons, Culture, Media and Sport, weren't so obsessed in trying to prove that it was Russians who... Rig the referendum and all the other nonsense. What they would do is actually a proper investigation into how comedy and drama gets commissioned with the BBC. I suspect it's one heck of a cartel. I suspect if you're not on the inside of the inside group who probably stay in the same hotels during the Edinburgh Fringe, all members of the Groucho, you know, you don't get a look in. Once you're part of the inside group, you get commissioned to write the most dreadful trash and you get awards for it and you're there forever yeah i mean you know I, i've read uh, i read a piece recently a few years ago about um the role that the radio for comedy plays in in literally being the gatekeeper of what's yeah. considered funny in this country and yeah. what that means is that it's very very difficult i mean you know we think it's difficult to create alternative media for politics and so on but it's infinitely more difficult for up-and-coming comedians yeah. to move into the world in which they can make money and make an impact because there is literally this tiny group of people at yeah. radio 4 in essence who will filter you through and then you start off on radio 4 and then you get onto BBC yeah. Two, and then you might get onto BBC One, and then you're a household name. But it's yeah. always people with. I bet you, a hundred percent of the comedians who've gone through that process would yeah. be anti. I, I, I think Radio Four, in particular, their commissioning process is, from what I've heard, is particularly disgraceful mm. and particularly incestuous, mm. and needs to be thoroughly, thoroughly investigated. Yeah. I mean, you know, you hear about the controllers of these channels. I mean, I, you know, it, it's a sort of bureaucratic aristocracy that that you know i think needs thorough investigation yeah who who makes these decisions and on what basis and you know the fact that we we, we don't even hear these questions asked i think is to use the favorite work phrase problematic yes exactly <laughs> and um aristocracy is a good word actually for yeah. so much of this stuff there is a yeah. real neo aristocracy in the sense of self-serving yeah. people um they speak in their own language they live in their yeah. own world they distrust the masses and i think radio for comedy bizarrely is a very good example of that talking about arrogant elites who we need to take down house of lords what should we do with that get absolutely get rid of it i've i've, I've always had uh, a, a very radical view on the House of Lords. The monarchy? Yeah, I want to abolish the monarchy. But, but Isn't there a danger here? If I was a Radio 4 yeah. smug, yeah. which is... Yeah, uh, that's what they are. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to preserve my cartel, or I was a member of the House of Lords and I wanted to preserve my privileged position, 
The moment you said get rid of the monarchy, I would jump on that. Yes. Because so, that, 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 that won't win you support in suburban Clacton or Queen. Yes, Com- I completely and utterly agree. And um, that's why one of the things I'm focusing on at the moment is not the monarchy itself, but the royal prerogative. So the royal prerogative is the mechanism through which the executive, in fact, and often just the prime minister, can behave like a monarch. So can declare war or sign treaties. They're taking the old powers, the king or queen. And And using it for themselves without having to go to parliament and sometimes without even having to go to cabinet, far less the people. So uh, I I would rather focus on the royal prerogative, which is really a political problem. Because you're absolutely right. And I've put my hands up to this and I accept it fully. You won't win much support in the uh, amongst the public if you say abolish the monarchy. I'm, I'm quite a monarchist and I'm quite a monarchist for a number of reasons. But... One is I actually quite just emotionally right. like the idea <laughs> of a royal family. I think so long as they're not, you know, um, behaving like celebrities, which one or two of the younger ones do, yeah. and I think it's a serious mistake. But so long as they are regal, I think it's a good thing. It, you know, it also keeps jumped-up politicians off the throne. If you like, yes. I, you know, I, I, I wouldn't, I would not be able to stomach um, a President Blair, yeah, <laughs> or, but or a president, know- a president. Theresa May? Yes, I think one of the reasons, I mean, the monarchy enjoys public support for numerous reasons. And in fact, that support goes up and down. So it's it's never uncomplicated. Um, It kind of goes down when they behave like rock stars. That's right. And and I think it will be fascinating to see what happens when we have King Charles, who I don't think will be particularly popular or might be seen as problematic. Um, But I think one of the reasons that the monarchy enjoys popular support uh, to a certain extent is because of a distrust in politicians. And that distrust in politicians is entirely reasonable and makes perfect sense because as we've seen over the past three years, politicians, many politicians, are not very trustworthy. So Mm. I think the monarchy actually benefits from that culture and lots Mm. of people probably think to themselves, well, as long as the head of state is is the queen, effectively, and all this kind of stable hereditary figure, we know it won't be that bunch of uh, people taking over. I think also actually, a lot of ordinary people in the suburbs have this inkling suspicion that actually the Queen is more on their side and yeah. kind, of, kind of hates the pushy upper middle class yeah. Radio 4 twats. Yeah, and you know, her, her conflict with Blair uh, yeah. in 97 yeah. um, over the whole People's yeah. Princess thing yeah. really spoke to that. I mean, that really was, looking back, a very important tension between the rise of this new establishment and the decaying of the old establishment and the passing on of the baton in many ways. Uh, But I think, um, so the monarchy is a complicated question. It's just a hard argument to win. And, you know, there are so many other more important arguments to have out. But in my mind, the House of Lords argument is very, very simple. Uh, To me, one of the most exciting bits of news is not the fact that Theresa May has stood down and Boris Johnson has become prime minister but that he's appointing some people around him who are as angry about the status quo and dissatisfied with the way we're governed and resentful of the incompetent establishment as, mm. as I am and as I suspect you are. And the standout thing for me is that Dominic Cummings, mm. the chief architect of the Vote Leave campaign, a man I've known for many, many years, has been appointed as one of his inside advisors in Downing Street. What would you do to the senior civil service if you were in charge? I'd get rid of a lot of them. Um, I would radically reform much of it. And I would create a culture in which the civil service went back to realising that they serve the nation. They serve uh, everyday, the, the, the workings of everyday society and have got to stop presuming that they are this 
political force, this unaccountable political mm-hmm. force, mm-hmm. who have the right to thwart democratic yeah. votes or to undermine elected politicians. So something needs to be done to, to, to make the civil service recover its sense of duty and responsibility and to stop playing this incredibly corrosive political role, because that utterly undermines the democratic process. Yeah. And it irritates the hell out of ordinary people. So that layer of the oligarchy, the new mm-hmm. oligarchy, I think is one of the worst. Yep. I think particularly the, the Treasury, the Foreign Office and the Cabinet Office, the mid to upper echelons of those institutions mm. need radical change. I don't just mean changes in process, but changes in, in many regards in, in personnel. Yeah. Um, I, I remember when I was an MP talking to a lot of ex-ministers. They would never say it when they were a minister, because when they're a minister, their egos and vanity make them think that they're doing a great job. When they're ex-ministers, they would actually tell you in the tea rooms, Time and again, they would try and do something or want something done. The civil service would yeah. find in the European dimension uh, uh, excuses not to. And also, you know, some of the, the, the equality legislation that there mm. is. There, there are a whole series of acts that the civil service routinely can find ways of invoking to, to stop ministers doing what they don't want. It's, it's quite extraordinary. It is extraordinary. And it's, it's, it's unacceptable. Yeah. And I think it, it, when you explain that to people, or yeah. you know, sometimes people know it for themselves, they get incredibly angry about that because yeah. they recognize that there is this unelected layer of the machine, yeah. which is actively trying to thwart what elected politicians and ministers want to do. And uh, I think the way in which they refer to Europe or the way in which they use European precedents mm-hmm. and law in order to proceed to pursue that mm-hmm. speaks again to the corrosive impact that the European Union plays, which is not simply that it's this overbearing imperial power crushing Britain under its boot. Mm-hmm. That's too simplistic. What it actually is, it's it's the oligarchy through which our rulers mm-hmm. can um, distance themselves from public pressure, distance themselves from elected politicians, and pursue an agenda that they simply think is the right agenda without ever having submitted it to mm-hmm. public mm-hmm. approval or public dissent. That's the really corrosive thing. So I, the, the thing about Boris Johnson, I have many reservations about Boris Johnson and some concerns about Boris Johnson. But the fact that he has got Dominic Cummins, the reason that's impressive is firstly because he seems to be wanting to have a leave atmosphere around number 10 and about time too. This is a leave country. We need to have leave leaders. Um, But also the fact that Boris seems to disregard how controversial it will be to give such a job to Cummings and how, uh, how controversial it will be among the media class, that's really impressive because that suggests that this could be a PM who will not bow down to what the chattering classes, the noisy, loud, um, interfering chattering classes and media classes constantly say and constantly think. So the Cummings thing is interesting from different perspectives, but the the slap in the face that it gives to the anti-Brexit sections of the media, I think, is great. Conventional politicians taking office would have a couple of advisors who would say, Prime Minister, you've got to go and have lunch with this editor here, you've got to schmooze this journalist here, you've got to get the, 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 the press mm. and the journalists to say kind things about you, that will then feed out to the country, the voters will then think well of you and you'll win votes. Mm. I, I think that's dramatically changed. Yes. I now think that the journalistic class, the professional pundits and the commentators in the media are now just so partisan 
and at the same time so crap mm. bluntly at reading what the country really thinks you know, most journalists I know I think only talk to ordinary voters when they order a delivery or, yeah. or, or pick up their, their dry cleaning yeah. um, and I just wonder if, if Boris might do something that no Prime Minister has, has ever done and that is go into an election not trying to cultivate the commentariat but just saying do you know what the voters don't give two stuffs about what newspapers think anymore. The voters don't give two hoots about what Sky News or Radio 4 say. Do you know what? Actually, the more they attack me, mm. the better. I hope he does. I hope that's the approach he takes, because I think that could be very beneficial for him, because people are instinctively suspicious of the media class these days. That's one of the most pronounced trends of our time, and I think they're right to be suspicious. And I think the thing about um, Boris Johnson... Uh, the thing about the media right now is there's this culture of what Toby Young refers to as Boris derangement syndrome. And they, they, I mean, it's, it's, BDS. BDS, it's, it's complete derangement. meltdown. It's yeah. complete meltdown. I mean, the way they talk about him is utterly who's that, hysterical. Who's that, who's that ridiculous journalist on Sky News, Beth Ruby? Right. I mean, you know, I don't normally name names, but I'm going to make an exception. I mean, her punditry is just extraordinary. She's not, she's not surely genuinely informing viewers of what's going on. She's saying what she thinks should happen. One of the problems, I think, with broadcast journalism today is that the people who were traditionally quite neutral and who would stand there and tell you with a straight face, um, this is what happened, this is what someone said, this is what someone did, good night. Mm -hmm. That's been completely replaced by broadcasters who very clearly have a point of view. I mean, the worst example, of course, is Channel 4 News, who not only do they give out their point of view as they're telling you the news, but... So they, what you're saying is Kathy Newman... Right, it's, you know, Kathy <laughs> Newman, um, Jon Snow, of course, all these people, but, but also they tweet their point of view constantly. So you have this broadcasting class who actually are on the particular side, and of course it's the side they're all on, which is the side that thinks Brexit is the worst thing that ever happened. Boris is uh, basically Hitler, and everything's going to hell in a handcar. And so people aren't stupid. I, I know that this class of people think that ordinary people are stupid, but they really aren't. And so when they see this stuff, they will say to each other, on the street corner, in the pub, at work, they will say, oh, you can't trust anything these people say. Mm -hmm. They're all the same. They all have the same point of view. And the fact that the media class doesn't know or care that so many people are saying that about them mm -hmm. tells you everything you need to know about them. So I think, you know, one of the successful things that Donald Trump has done. Now, I actually think there are huge differences between Donald Trump and Boris Johnson, and I think the attempt to put them together by Trump himself as well, in fact, is is actually an attempt to... Okay, Boris is a free trader. Trump yeah, is not. but it's, I think it's an attempt to delegitimize Boris Johnson by association, and I think that's something it, the Boris team would be um, well advised to look out for and not play into. Um, but I think... Uh, the, the, the me one thing that Trump has done well, and Boris could potentially learn from, is that he has had this kind of disregard for the media class and actually has confronted them and challenged them. And that's won him a lot of support. Now, it has crossed the line into illiberalism sometimes. And he will say things like, I wish we had tougher libel laws in the US so I could go after this person so or go Trump after that person. Yeah, Trump would say that. So, it, so his uh, his... Disregard for the media crosses the line into being sometimes anti-media freedom. So I don't think Boris Johnson should go down that route. But he could learn something from the Trump approach, which says, I don't care what the media class, and most ordinary people don't care what you think either. I suspect, though, when we go into the next general election, which I think will probably happen this autumn or next spring, 
there will be a great hoo-ha from the media classes because mm. none of them will manage to get Corbyn or, or Boris to give a proper debate. Yes. But you know, if I was Jeremy Corbyn or Boris Johnson, I wouldn't go anywhere near Channel 4. I wouldn't. Yeah. I would, a, <laughs> no one watching that programme is neutral. The, 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 the viewers are political and they've kind of made up their mind. B, you know, what, what wisdom is it that Jon Snow or Kathy Newman has that, yeah. that, that is any different to anyone else's? Yeah. The idea that they're particularly eloquent or good at asking searching questions is is, is a nonsense. Yeah. Uh, Google um, you know, Jordan Peterson yeah. channel for interview for details. <laughs> um, but, but also, why set yourself up to be attacked unfairly? Mm. I, I, if I was advising either Corbyn or, or Johnson, yeah, I would say go into the next election and you know do a, a, a number of interviews yeah um where you are talking to a youtube channel yeah that you control yeah someone like ian dale ask you tough but not nasty questions yeah and you know talk to the viewer as a, as a grown-up let the viewer maybe even just do a phone in i mean let the viewer actually ask you the questions i i think um what Boris Johnson and Corbyn, in fact, what both of them could do in, in the forthcoming general election, which I think will be soon, I hope it will be, um, they can make real something that's already been happening, which is that the media class has become surplus to requirements to so many ordinary people. They just don't pay attention to it in the way that they used to, and, and they don't trust it. They're bad at their analysis. And they're bad at what they do. And I think one thing that Boris Johnson could do, which I think would be super clever is go around the country i think you should do some interviews right go around the country talk to tens of thousands of people over a period of weeks i think people underestimate the impact that that can make firstly on the actual people you speak to but also on, exactly i was on the red bus with exactly now a funny story we, we went literally from town to suburb across the midlands and literally you would turn up in a town town square boris would get out Giza would follow, I would be third. Boris would say a few words, they would cheer, we'd get back in. Huge, huge, huge impact. Um, of course, Boris at one time had to actually go back down to London to vote. So we pulled up into a town and they were expecting Boris to go for a pass, and it was just me, and everyone went, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> I don't think we won the, 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 the vote there. But I saw with my own eyes yeah. actually how, I mean, it's slightly odd. It's, it's almost a sort of pre television yeah. type of campaign. But boy, that's a really good way of putting it. Pre-television style of campaigning, even though television is such a dominant medium right now. And that's because television news and broadcasting has become so bad. And so people are, people are, I think, looking back to the kind of soapbox approach, not necessarily because they are nostalgic, but because it's the clearest way to talk to politicians. Do you know what? Television is, you said, dominant. I, I think of my 10-year-old. She has... A multiplicity mm. of channels at her disposal. She never watches yeah. any television. Yeah. She only watches YouTube. Yeah. Now, if I was an advertiser sitting in West London with my graduate club membership thrown in and my bonuses here and my big salary and my you know, fancy restaurant bill thrown in for free, I'd be seriously worried because the advertising industry, they may not realise it, but they're, they're being completely disrupted by mm. a, 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 a type of almost infotainment advertising model that's mm. coming along. It's engaging young people. It's very low cost. It's obviously very effective because my daughter asks for birthday presents and Christmas <laughs> presents. <laughs> She's clearly getting it from YouTube. And I, 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 just, I just wonder if something similar is, is going to happen to current effects. Yes. You know, 
Do we really think that people will find themselves informed by anything that Radio 4 ever says or does in two years' time? It's such a pressing question. Uh, it's one of the big issues of our time. And if you look at the BBC again, for example, you have a situation where lots and lots of people will not trust BBC news broadcasting and will not like it very much and probably won't watch it. And they're being f compelled to pay for it. So that's unsustainable. But I think you're right, actually. When I say television is the dominant medium, I mean, in, in, the, in the political sense, it remains the dominant medium. But that doesn't make sense. It, it, there's really no need for it to play that role. And um, I think Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn could go to the YouTube channels, they could go to social media, they could create their own forums, and they could go around the country. But you know, the next general election, if these two politicians have any sense, and they do have some sense, uh, it could be the first general election in which TV is just bumped off its pedestal. And instead you have the social media online, around the country, in buses, on street corners, in, in public forums, that I think would have a huge impact and it would really take down a peg or two this media class which everyone's had enough of. I'd say it's, it's, it's how I won the Clacton by-election and how we helped win the vote leave referendum, yeah. but you know, rather than learn from any of that, I think, I think those are straws in the wind and they're going to redefine, redefine politics. But it's, it's been absolutely wonderful having you coming on, Brett. Great. Thank you for coming in. Wonderful.